Hi everyone and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. There are still a few seats up the front if anyone would like to move forward. I know we're spread quite far back today as we've got a large group. Well, thank you all for joining us for an afternoon of reflections on the role of painting as a critical practice and its reception in contemporary art discourse. Um, there are a number of artist talks and programs happening alongside the Painting More Painting exhibition, um, most Saturdays throughout Chapter 1 and 2, and um, you can see the full program on the ACCA website if you're interested in joining us again. Um, for our session this afternoon, we have an excellent lineup of speakers with amazing experience, expertise and perspectives on the history, theory and current practice of contemporary painting. We will begin with a 20-minute keynote presentation from artist A.D.S. Donaldson titled The Anecdote and the Productive Artist, Sydney Painting and Melbourne Painting Again. We will take any pressing questions for A.D.S. Donaldson at the end of his presentation and then we will then have three shorter 10-minute presentations representing diverse positions on painting from Helen Johnson, Helen Maudsley and Jeff Newton. This will be followed by a lively discussion and conversation between our speakers and further questions from you concluding at 4.30 with the bar and gallery open until 5. So that's just a bit of an overview of our session this afternoon. And now it really is my pleasure to welcome and introduce Sydney artist A.D.S. Donaldson who has flown down to join us this afternoon. A.D.S. Donaldson has been exhibiting nationally and internationally for more than 25 years. Emerging from the rigorous theory-driven contemporary art scene of 1980s Sydney, his work connects to the city's rich, abstract legacy. A.D.S. Donaldson studied at the Sydney College of Arts in the 1890s, then at the Kunst Academy in Dusseldorf and the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts in Copenhagen in the 90s, and finally at the École de Beaux Arts in Paris early in the 21st century. He has a PhD in art history from the University of Sydney and lectures in the painting department at the National Art School. His work is in collections at the National Gallery of Australia, the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the National Gallery of Victoria, as well as many other public and private collections. He is currently writing a history of Australian art in the 20th century with Rex Butler. So without further ado, I will hand straight over to our esteemed speaker, A.D.S. Donaldson, and if you have any further questions for him, please save them up until the end and I'll bring around the cordless microphone. Thanks. Thank you. Um, so thanks for the introduction. Um, I'm Andrew Donaldson. Um, and has been mentioned, um, the paper's title is The Anecdote and the Productive Artist, Sydney Painting and Melbourne Painting Again. Um, <coughs> As you're no doubt aware, there's only eight stories, I don't know, 12, 10, um, and today's uh, might be called Stranger Comes to Town. So that's me. Okay. <clears throat> In the artist and artist historian Ian Burns' rhetorically entitled essay, Is Art History Any Use for Artists?, first published in 1985, he wonders whether, quote, for an art historian, a tormenting thought might be that the work of artists, that is, their processes of artistic production, represents bodies of knowledge containing a concept of art history different to and largely independent of academic, brackets including curatorial, and brackets practices. So following Byrne in this talk, I'd like to take up the question, is it even a problem, of the nature of painting today in Australia or put another way, of contemporary painting here, 
or put yet another way, of contemporary Australian painting. For Byrne, then, the medium of this alternative art history to that of art historical institutions is the anecdote, the stories or micro-narratives told by one artist to another in the course of everyday life in Bohemia. And for Byrne, quote, neither the authenticity of the anecdote nor its empirical veracity is an issue, for a story without any factual basis may serve to reveal greater cultural truths than any other account. And he identifies the first history of Australian art, William Moore's 1934, The Story of Australian Art, as exemplary in this regard. And we might connect this singular history to Herbert Badham's lesser known 1949, A Study of Australian Art, as both creating a set of, in Byrne's sense, exemplary Australian art histories. Byrne was, of course, writing in the last decade in which Australian art history mattered. He wrote the text in 1985. The 80s had begun with the opening of the National Gallery of Australia and ended with the bicentennial celebrations. And in retrospect, we can see that the period was a high point for our art history, bookended by the appearance of an overarching institution and by the 200th anniversary of colonisation. Writing between these two events and evoking the terms of what we would now call institutional critique, Byrne confronted our artists and accused us of having, quote, withdrawn from challenging the authority of the institutional model, end quote, but then assured us that, despite this development, the anecdotal persists as one of the most effective forms of communicating a sense of history among artists. This, then, is the Byrnean task, to question the logic of the institution by way of recourse to the anecdote, and today I'll try to keep to this model in order to reflect on painting here today. In this short paper, then, let me first look at the exhibition and just sound off a little about its structure. Then let me discuss painting in Melbourne with reference to two Melbourne artists before I finish by making explicit how the anecdote and the life of the studio allow us, as artists, to make painting here new again. So, anecdotally, contrary to the name of this institution, which asserts a national domain, but in fact entirely consistent with its history, the here I have just been referring to is Melbourne and not Australia. For painting, more painting is an exhibition devoted to Melbourne's art, a kind of medium-specific version of the National Gallery of Victoria's Melbourne Now show of a year before last. This city's myopia is unimaginable where I live, where the proposition of an exhibition called Sydney Now would be met with incredulity and guffaws by that city's artists. To generalise, the Sydney local scene looks outward, goes outward and draws on the art worlds of elsewhere. As a result, it is, in a sense, invisible to itself. That is, Sydney's local is international, whereas I would say, relatively, Melbourne's local is national. One way to think of this is through sport, in particular football, which by and large here means the national game Australian rules. In Sydney, the same term football could refer as much to the world game, previously called soccer, or the international games of rugby union and rugby league. Put another way, and generalising again, the directors of that city's art institutions come from elsewhere, whereas Melbourne's apparatchiks are overwhelmingly from here. The exhibition Melbourne Now sought to distinguish the city's art from that made in other centres of the country, yet all it created was a kind of warm, fuzzy legibility, unlike, for instance, the exhibition Papunya Tula of 2000, which emanated from a much smaller locality 
and succeeded in identifying that place's own unique contribution to our art. As I have written elsewhere, Melbourne regularly misidentifies its own art as national, a tradition begun perhaps by the art historian Bernard Smith, whose canonical Australian painting, 1780-1960, was published in 1962. This history finishes, of course, with the 1959 exhibition of the Antipodeans, as if all of Australian art history inevitably leads to this group of largely Melbourne painters. Indeed, it is by this telos that Smith retrospectively constructs his entire history, even hiding his own agency in its manufacture by omitting to mention that he was himself a member of the group and the author of its manifesto. Later, in his autobiography, Smith will recall a dream in which he stabs William Moore to death. In defense of the image, it's a quote from his manifesto, the central aim of Smith's text he rails against abstraction with its, quote, pageant of colour. And it was, in his view, an insufficient art. More particularly, however, in the Antipodean Manifesto, Smith is pissed off with Sydney. After all, um, uh, after all the Australian art world was then divided between Melbourne's so-called figs and Sydney's abs. He wrote in his manifesto that wherever we look, New York, London, San Francisco or Sydney, we see young artists dazzled by the luxurious pageantry and colour of non-figuration. And with its preponderance of representational painting, it is just this separation that painting more painting seems to be revisiting. Indeed, might this not even be said, uh, might this not even be said of that other great Melbourne show, Paul Taylor's Popism held just across the road at the NGV in 1982. Looking over the first volume, 8M, of this exhibition, aren't we struck by the complete domination of figurative painting, with only Melinda Harper's untitled 2014 and Stephen Bram's untitled brackets, two-point perspective, end brackets, 2016, pointing towards figuration's shadow. But even then, Bram's work, at least in the context of this exhibition, operates as a 21st century reminder of the emergence in the Renaissance of that great representational device, single point perspective. <clears throat> Beside Harper and Bram, there is not another abstract painting in a show of more than 50 works. What would be at stake in so promoting figuration? Or is it the curator's view that it is the most interesting painting being done here now? The largest space in the exhibition is described as the panorama room implying that the curatorial task was to survey the field, to present an overview, but not to take a position, adopting the binary, as I have, of one form of painting against another. The exhibition's title is not, after all, representational, more representational painting, when this in is, in fact, appears to be its subject. Equally, the exhibition's title is not representational, more representational painting, brackets Melbourne in brackets, when again this would be more properly account for the work in the show. By my count of the 36 artists in the first part, 26 or nearly 75% are from Melbourne. Eschewing the Australia in the acronym ACCA and setting aside the show's gender and post-colonial politics and focus instead on its geopolitics, the exhibition's purview appears to be limited to those representational artists the curators conceive from their front yard. Now, taking up Byrne's suggestion to turn to the anecdote for the basis of our institutional critique, I would look, like to look at two painters who have contributed to the history of art in Melbourne, one in the show and the other not. 
In doing so, I'll be relating the stories, if only briefly, of a representational painter and an abstract painter, one alive and one dead. One very much part of the scene here, the other much, much less so, even when he was alive and living here. My point will be to reflect on the way Australia's and Melbourne's art history is being constructed and therefore to point to other possibilities of thinking for ourselves the history of art and artists in this city. The first is Juan de Vila, an artist well known to use a phrase I'm sure you're all familiar with, locally, nationally and internationally, and whose work, Being in the World of 2015, is hanging in the corner of the Panorama Gallery next door. In, in, indeed, in some ways, de Vila is particularly identified with Melbourne, having moved here from Chile in 1974, a matter of months after General Augusto Pinochet's coup was enacted against the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende. And it's from Melbourne that de Vila emerged in the 1980s, as much, as in, as much in step with that city's popism as the postmodernism that was then sweeping the Anglosphere. Once virulently representational, it is interesting to see how his painting is now fraying along that edge, now giving off a soft painterly air, reminiscent of nothing so much as the nuageism or cloudism of the mid to late 1950s in Paris. Coincidentally, de Villa is not now in Melbourne because he is being, happily being reintegrated into the story of Chilean art through the exhibition Juan de Villa, Imogen Residue, slash after image, which is running at the Centro Cultural Matucana 100 in Santiago until October. There, in a kind of homecoming, and in his first one-person museum exhibition in South America, he's being received as an Australian-Chilean artist, and not, as we would have it, as Chilean-Australian artist. These reversals of designation point to the unfixed nature of national appellations, the inability to describe what they certainly set out to account for. Following the problems inherent in this kind of nomenclature, together with my colleague Rex Butler, we have elsewhere tried to reveal certain slippages of categories in de Villa's work. De Villa's paintings have, for the most part, and for many decades, tried to make explicit their connections to the world, and of course, the world's connections to de Villa. But as often as though by doing, but often as though by doing so, at least, at least this is the way they've been understood by his critics, de Villa could contain them, limit them only to the specific connections he wants to make evident. In short, to make them his own, despite his evident borrowings and citations. You'll have to imagine a de Villa painting, I'm sure you can, from the 80s particularly. Thus, with his signature line and designated frame, he has pointed out his relationships to everyone from Sidney Nolan and John Nixon to Kenneth Nolan and Tom of Finland. This is de Villa as postmodern Melbourne popist. But as we have pointed out, there is always a hidden, secret, even unconscious referent being shown to us. In a paper we have delivered elsewhere, Butler and I have pointed out de Villa's hitherto unrecognised quotation of the work of the Argentinian painter Juan Melay. Again, I would be showing you a slide of a work and a member of the Mardi group, Melay's Irregular Number no. 2 of 1946, has been used without designation by de Villa and without being recognised by his critics in more than 10 of his works. And I would now show you a de Villa work which quotes the melee. If it is true that de Villa's practice is underwritten by psychoanalytic principles, as the painter Helen Johnson has suggested, 
What are we to make of this sublimation or oppression? Doesn't it allow us to understand his after images, in the sort of title of a series of works, not as a retinal shudder, to use Duchamp's term, not as optical. Instead, can't we think de Villa's after, in his, in his formula, more like post? And that what de Villa is dealing with in these works is his ongoing attempt to move beyond image-based painting, beyond that linguistic codification that was the predominant vehicle of his practice until, say, 2010. That is, what was hitherto repressed in his practice was abstraction, and it is this that is now leaking out from his canvases. After all, don't they now seem to us much less programmatically indebted to the history of art and much more like a stylistic amalgam, say, of the Bavarian painter Gundaferg's patched and blotched fields of colour and the Sydney surrealist James Gleason's wet and twisted corporal intestines. And again, I would refer you to these two images, which I'm sure you're struck by their proximity to what you understand as perhaps a uh, de Villa post-2010. Now, the other artist I would like to talk about in relation to this city is the New Zealander Gordon Walters. For most of us, Walters is New Zealand's second artist, the creator of the great Koru works, but somehow a slightly lesser painter than his contemporary Colin McCann. But from another point of view, he is a minor, though pioneering Melbourne painter, as it was here, after all, that he did his first abstract paintings. And, he so, and, he, and in so doing, he places himself in a line of Melbourne abstraction that began in the 1930s. But before moving, before moving on, let us consider this chronology, because in sketching it here, I think we are beginning to outline the true history of Melbourne abstraction. Of course, the first abstract work by any Australian, and for the moment I'm setting aside that of the Theosophists, is a work I've only ever heard about from others and have certainly never seen is a print, perhaps a liner cut, done in England, or was it America, in 1919 by the great expatriate Horace Brodsky and part of the remarkable collection of Melbourne Dr. Harry Lou. At the time, Brodsky was living in New York and through his London connections was managing the second and final exhibition of the Vorticists held at the Penguin Club there. It was not until the early 30s that this line had its second station when Sam Attio did a small series of remarkable works on paper made up from dots and dashes of ink or watercolour touched into already wet paper. You'd have to imagine I'm showing you a slide of that work. These works were done about the same time as his painting Organised Nine to Yellow of 1933, which has often been said to be Melbourne's first abstract painting, when it seems to me, and I'm going to show it to you now, that this work is clearly a portrait in the late 1930s, Sidney, Nolson, Sidney Nolan also painted his remarkable Ulysses of 1936, co-establishing with Frank Hinder the tradition of spray painting in this country, one which continues to this day. As well around this time, George Bell, probably in England, completed his abstract. A little later, of all people, Russell Drysdale completed his post-cubist abstract. For both of these artists, these were the only works in this idiom they were ever to do. Then there was the work by Adrian Lawler around the time of the Herald exhibition at which he was such a presence, such as Staccato of 1940. The 1940s here, of course, were dominated by the Heidi artists and by the painters of the left, who in keeping with their politics were all resolutely figurative. And the line begun by Brodsky, Attio and Nolan was not added to until the mid-40s, 
when the German emigre Ludwig Hirschfeld Mack exhibited with the Contemporary Art Society and held a small and little recognised exhibition at the Roden White Library at the University of Melbourne in 1946. About the same time, the George Bell trained Percy Watson turned to abstraction and began his own non-figurative work of the 40s and 50s, paintings which took him forever outside the histories of modernism in this place. Now to return to Walter's story, he in fact lived in both Sydney and Melbourne between 1946 and 1953, travelling intermittently back to New Zealand and once for less than a year to Europe. He moved to Sydney first in January 1946 for a few months and visited Melbourne briefly. In 1947, he returned again to Sydney where, like the New Zealander Len Lai before him, he studied Aboriginal rock art both in the bush and in the Australian Museum. He returned again to Wellington in 1949 from where he headed to Europe in 1950. And it was in Paris that he encountered the work of Victor Vassarelli, Sophie Tauber Arp, Augusto Bain and Giuseppe Capagrossi. In early 1951, he returned again to Melbourne and was joined later that year by another New Zealand artist, George Johnson, whose show on the occasion of his 90th birthday is to open this weekend, I think, or next, who had arrived in Australia that year. And throughout most of 1952, the two friends shared a studio in Nicholson Street, Fitzroy. And it was there that Walters made his breakthrough into abstraction. In all, Walters lived for more than two and a half years in Melbourne. And when he left in August 1953, he did so with the intention of returning, even leaving work here. Finally, let me speak, that's to sort of finish in a way with um, sort of discussion of those two artists. Um, finally, let me speak about the idea of the productive artist, a figure introduced to me in conversation with the Viennese artist Heimo Zobenig. It is a way of explaining the uselessness of, say, Picasso, and at the same time accounting for the grip so many arguably lesser or minor artists have on painters today. The productive artist is not a master whose style we can invoke, nor are they important artists after whom we come, or within whose set of concerns our own work will inevitably be framed or contextualised. Indeed, they may not even be artists we respect or admire. Like the horizon of possibilities that informed Avila's painting and the list of painters Walters saw in Paris and Holland, productive artists are useful. That is, it is after their work we can make our own. But this is not a question of style. They are not influencers, not precursive idols, but us stuff. Maybe the true post-post-medium medium. We do not have to be like them, nor do we have to want to imitate their work, but they are before us, demanding our attention and asking us to connect to them. They are like guilty secrets and they can sometimes bring us shame. My professor from Copenhagen, Klaus Carstensen, once, admit, once admitted, for instance, to, have, to having a soft spot for the abstract expressionist Danish-German painter K.R.H. Sonderborg. Whereas for Albert Olin, it might be the Berliner Gernot Bubenik or the French pop artist Alain Jacquet. In some way, Olin's 1997 catalogue for his exhibition at the Kunsthalle Basel is an artist book devoted to such figures. For Zobenik, the productive artist, has now I would be showing you a work which includes three images, all more or less identical. Right, that would be important, I would stop here and we might reflect on the first, which is Piet Mondrian's grid, 
painting number three from 1918, Ian Burns' 1965 painting Yellow Constant, a blue on yellow version of that painting, and then Tuhaimo Zobenig's painting more or less identical to the Burn, double the size of the Mondrian, uh, let's say light blue on white. These are the diamond-shaped, highly linear uh, works which he only did in that time, 1918 and 1919. And I would tell you then, for Zobenig, the productive artist has been Burn, as it was Mondrian for him, and for me, it has been Juan de Villa, as it was Juan Mele for him. These artists, and they could be anyone from the recent past to the early 20th century, have shaped some of the art we call contemporary. They are anecdotally trapped within the edges of our canvases. They are there, but only we know it. They are the anecdotes embedded in our surfaces. Thank you. Between George Johnson and um, and uh, Walters was was Johnson making hard edge abstract paintings when he was in the studio with Walters at that time? Uh, I'm not sure. It's the first exhibition we know of this. I'm not sure exactly. The first exhibition we know of wondered about the Walters and Johnson connection. Um, Walters is teaching. I th uh, sorry. Um, uh, Johnson gets a job at Fran. Uh, maybe I'm not sure. Where he's working a lot with murals. Um, and his first exhibition, I think, of note is an exhibition at the Tasmanian Tourist Office in 1959. So we don't know too much before that. On the other hand, we could have seen, for instance, the very close relation between the work of Giuseppe Capagrossi as we could have between Augusto Ban and Walters for the context in which they were uh, producing work in the early 50s in Nicholson, on Nicholson Street. Thanks very much, ADS Donaldson. Um, we can come back to further questions and discussion um, following our next three presentations. Um, and I'd like to welcome and introduce uh, all three of our next speakers uh, who will present their own position on painting as a critical practice and its reception in contemporary art discourse. Um, so first up is Melbourne artist, writer and teacher Helen Johnson. Helen is one of the seven uh, artists featured in our solo studies section of the Painting More Painting uh, exhibition, um, and painting is central to her art practice. Helen undertook a Bachelor of Fine Art Honours at RMIT University in 2002, and a PhD in Fine Art from Monash University in 2014. In 2015, she re released a book titled Painting is a Critical Form, adapted from her PhD, which we have available at the Acker Bookshop. Helen is a lecturer at Monash University and is represented by Sutton Gallery in Melbourne and Chateau Chateau in Los Angeles. Helen has participated in residencies in Germany and Norway and has a studio residency at Gertrude Contemporary Melbourne in 2004. Uh, Helen exhibits regularly in Australia and overseas and next year in 2017 she will present a solo exhibition at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. Uh, following Helen Johnson, we have Helen Maudsley an artist with an extensive exhibition history um, who lives and works in Melbourne. Helen Maudsley has had solo exhibitions regularly since 1957. Um, she received private tuition from the artists James Quinn and Winifred McCoven before studying at the National Gallery Art School Melbourne between 1945 to 47 and later completing a graduate diploma in fine arts from the Victorian College of 
the Arts Melbourne. She worked for the CAE for many years, teaching painting and drawing, and her work is held in numerous public collections, including the National Gallery of Australia, the Art Gallery of South Australia, and the National Gallery of Victoria. Uh, Helen's work is featured in the panorama section of Painting More Painting in Acker's main gallery, um, Gallery One. And then we'll be followed by Jeff Newton, the director of Melbourne Gallery Neon Park, which has recently expanded, opening a second larger space in Brunswick. Um, and Neon Park represents a number of artists including, included in the Painting More Painting exhibition, such as Josie Kid Crow, Elizabeth Newman, Colleen Ahern, Irene Hannenberg, Elizabeth Pooley, John Spatiri, and Janet Birchall. Jeff is also an artist and curator in his own right. Um, his work was included in Melbourne Now at the NGV in 2014. Recent solo exhibitions include Big Time at TCB in 2012 and French Letters at the Physics Room Christchurch in 2010. And curatorial projects include Like Mike at the Charles Nodrum Gallery, Utopian Slumps, Sarah Scout, Neon Park and Linden Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne 2013. So um, I'll now hand over to Helen Johnson, who will kick off our 10-minute presentations. Thanks, Helen. You might need this a little bit down. Yeah, I think I'm Yeah, that, uh, maybe a bit. Oh, that, maybe that's OK. Thanks. That seems good. I'm just going to get some water. Okay, um, thanks Andrew for your lecture, that was really fascinating and incredible. Um, before I start, I'd like to first acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the continuing sovereign owners of the land that we're gathered on today, um, as well as the land that I live and work on. Uh, I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and I'd like to pay my respects to any First Nations people who are here uh, with us today. Okay, um, first I just want to say that this is going to be a series of sort of discursive thought trains um, rather than like a closed argument. So there's going to be threads left dangling and probably contradictions, um, and which is maybe in the spirit of painting itself. So I like to think. Um, the operations of painting extend well beyond the material principles of support, surface, gesture, and what have you. The spirit of argument is as important to painting as mark making, if not more so. I was going to say, does painting feel like it has something to prove? No, I don't think so. And then I thought, wait, no, I don't want to anthropomorphize painting as though it's this one thing that you can sort of get to know in a cute way and that you can grapple with as one thing. Um, I kind of think of it more like it's more like a shed full of tools. I mean, I guess some painters feel like they have something to prove and some curators of painting feel like they have something to prove, but others not so much. Um, I'd like to say that we're beyond that, that questioning over and over whether something like painting can still be relevant arises from the sort of stubborn, blinkered mentality that I associate with people like Andrew Bolt, who were just repeatedly kind of trying to reassert anachronistic attitudes. 
Um, I'm drawn to discussions about painting that are not afraid of an argument, that air sharply contradictory positions without having to resolve them by the end. If painting gets put to use as a means to, as they say, smell one's own farts, then it's not very engaging to me. But intellectual disagreements with painting at their centre open my mind up more. Um, here's a short exchange from a recent interview between David Joselet and Suzanne von Falkenhausen, which was published in um, Freeze DE on the occasion of Joselet Akim Hochdörfer and Manuela Ammer's exhibition, Painting 2.0, opening recently. Joyzelet, while it is a simplification that has many problems, for the sake of argument, I think your characterization is largely correct. We are trying to take painting from Greenberg to Debord, von Falkenhausen, but Debord, dot, dot, dot. Joyzelet, he would have hated the project. Von Falkenhausen, yes, I think so. He would have sent in some black paper or something like that. So von Falkenhausen, in this gentle way, throws the key move of Joselet's show into question, and it's fine. I think it's important not to have to all agree when it comes to painting. Joselet proposes circulation, as many of you would know this, um, so I'm sorry if I'm circulating around the same argument. Joselet proposes circulation as a dominant example of an operation on painting as the locus of painting's meaning today. On Painting 2.0, he says, our show overall is an effort to think the tactics of painting beyond the material, the material nature of painting. Painting in that sense is not about the material substrate, but about a set of discursive possibilities. Joselet seems to suggest here that the surface of a painting the pictorial or gestural space of painting is no longer an interesting space for the production of meaning, has been moved on from. Nonetheless, Painting 2.0 contained more than its fair share of stretched painted works on canvas. So this form does persist, but I guess I take Joselet to say that it doesn't exist on its own anymore, or it's not very interesting if it does. Whatever side you're on, I think that policing where meaning can and can't lie is arbitrary and sad, but I like the idea of meaning migrating around on its own terms, not being told where to go. I think about this as being sort of like hair. I mean, that hair could be a useful metaphor for painting at this point, because even though it's technically dead, made of dead cells, it still grows, undergoes changes, is able to be operated on, with shape and colour, hold and accessory and what, what you will. But as soon as you cut it off, it becomes unappealing and kind of gross. Um, <laughs> which is what happens when a conception of painting is limited to the idea of medium specificity. Painting as the floor of the hairdresser. But then also maybe the critical possibility of painting is like getting a really good weave put in or in the way that they fill big sacks with all that chopped off hair and use it to soak up oil spills in the ocean, which is true, that's what they do with hairdresser hair. Um, Isabel Grohr addressed this succinctly in an argument with Achim Hochdörfer um, in Text at Zur Kunst. So you can see that I have a tendency to look to German debates. Um, so, sorry, I mispronounced her name, it's Isabel Gruff. So in this argument, Gruff said, 
I am interested in those approaches that show an awareness of the hopelessly compromised status of their medium and the massive fetishization to which it is subject. A painting, in other words, for which painting is not the issue. I concur with this, with the necessity of being able to look outward. There is also the question of whether criticality is the word we have to use in relation to painting in particular. Do people talk about critical sculpture in the same way, or critical photography, and so forth? Maybe they do, and I, I just don't know about it. Um, but could we just say useful, or provocative, or engaged? Criticality itself is arguably founded in the presumptive white supremacy that underpinned much Enlightenment thought. That doesn't mean it's unusable, particularly, I think, if we can mesh a contemporary conception of subjecthood into those parts of 18th century thought structures that we deem useful. But it does mean thinking about how the term is used and being careful to avoid the trap of mistaking your own subjective sense of universality for universality per se, because if you do that, then you'll find yourself back with the bigots. Regarding painting's perception in contemporary art discourse, people who seek to exclude this or that from art discourse invariably end up looking like fools, in my view, or at least being discredited in the, in the long game. This has happened so many times with painting that it's worth little more than a yawn. It's a propagation of a lack of vision, a cheap and unworthy attempt at taking ownership. Painting doesn't do this or that. It can be useful, it can be useless, lazy, intelligent, mediocre, tender. It enables one to encounter surface, sometimes image, not mediated by a screen. And that is a sweet relief for many people, particularly those born post-internet, if my students over the years are anything to go by. There was a marked shift, a renewed desire to engage with material processes, often clumsy, grotty, inefficient, tactile ones when this generation reached university age. So this could be thought of as a counterweight to these ideas put forth by Joselet about circulation, that there is still possibility in the physical experience of painting. As Magdalena Nisloni said in response to yet another argument for the significance of circulation, this time made by Michael Sanchez, it is telling that you speak about the circulation and networking of images rather than actual art objects themselves. Why do the objects persist, sometimes in an emphatically material sense, as in, as in the example you gave us of Sergei Jensen's work? In your account, the objects seem dispensable for the functioning of the network, whereas they actually stay alien to it and cannot be completely absorbed by it. I will finish by saying that painting, or at least the sort of painting that operates on and with images, can enable a person to encounter anew an image or attitude that has hitherto existed as a given or an invisible thing. Why mark time upon this image again? Why make it crumbly or slick or fetishize it? Bringing subject matter into painting can serve to bring it back into question. Thank you, Helen. Um, we now have Helen Maudsley. 
Thank you. Can you hear me? <laughs> I've always worried in case people can't, in case I'm just talking and nobody can hear. Okay. From my point of view, this exhibition is so rewarding to spend time with and wonder about because of the variety of what artists here are delving into. There doesn't seem to be a concept to be proved, or if there is one, it's very open-ended, very multi-dimensional. The title I was given for this exhibition and have thought about is The Role in Painting as a Critical Practice and its Reception in Contemporary Art Discourse, and I've tried to respond to exactly that. First of all, the word painting. Does it mean the act of painting, or does it mean a painting, a rectangle with a painted surface, a picture? The bark paintings and the wall painting here are not pictures, but I think that all the other contributions here are rectangles. Much of the actual physical painting in this exhibition I've found fascinating and would love to know how it is done. Similarly, the different supports of the paintings are often so important and inventively used are an essential part of the work, not just a prop for the paint. So then I'm not sure what a crit critical practice is, but it sounds political, as if it's demonstrating an opposition. And I think that, that this is not what I do and not what many of these artists here are doing. I'm wondering whether there are subjects that are deemed appropriate for contemporary art by art authorities, those who decide what is and is not contemporary art, who are involved in its discourse. My interest in painting is as a visual language, and I use painting and the rectangle to make visual essays about what I see and wonder about. What is it that I'm looking at, both physical and non-physical? What does it imply? What can it imply? In the world of things, what do the shapes and colours imply, apart from Freudian symbolism, iconography and general symbolism? In the visual language of the rectangle, not of things, how can configuration and, place, and placing be used? My first real teacher as an art student around 1946 was Van Eyck, the Madonna of Chancellor Rowland. I could see clearly on the right side of the picture the crown that the angel is facing on the, the virgin's head with the baby sitting on her knee and on the left side of the picture, the Chancellor in abeyance with that long centre avenue of division. As I stared into the picture space, I found a middle ground and then a distance, and in this distance, a city that upon staring links to the Virgin's crown by colour and design, becomes a crown for the baby because Van Eyck has placed the cathedral with all its points exactly above the baby's head. 
like a crown. This was my first experience of visual analogy, and I discovered that this manoeuvre Van Eyck used constantly, that it is not a variation of the language of icons or symbols. My next teacher, some years later, was Vermeer, the girl with the glass of wine, where the configuration of the white jug on the cloth in the middle distance is exactly the same as the configuration of the seated girl in the orange-red dress in the foreground with obvious sexual implication. It doesn't work if the viewer looks at the white jug on the cloth literally, verbally, as a white jug on a cloth, doesn't see the configuration, and also sees the seated girl literally only as a seated girl, not as a configuration. So this kind of visual thinking is outside verbal thinking, is visual analogy. This is what I'm interested in, and also the dynamics of the rectangle. It's pulls either to use or to resist. Particularly the centre of the rect rectangle is a horrible bully, hard to resist unless you use the golden section. I have always used real objects as a medium because they can be so evocative and can be stylized and rearranged to suit any purpose. In general living, I'm struck by the civilized and the feral, that we all zip into the feral so easily. We are not all the time civilized and respectful of others. We are, as people, both civilized and feral, we carry within us our primal past. I think that perhaps, I'm not sure, but I think my pictures are about being. Meaning in art can be a difficulty. People often say, what does it mean? Meaning in words or in everyday speech is not the same as visual meaning, which I'm sure everyone here knows. I don't think that what I have tried to describe is critical practice. I'm not criticizing, I'm just trying to make sense. I suppose it's a variation of an observational practice, a wondering practice. The painting of mine here started off from the roses in my garden, four perfect ones placed in a jar and stared at. The longer the stare, the more there is. Not only the beautiful and perfect, perfect scrolls, but all the tiny half-formed becoming ones, so like the beginning of life. Once here, the references follow. The scrolls become, of course, the scrolls of time, records of our ancient past. And as I draw these scrolls, they are also scrolls of the law, of judges' wigs still worn, an expression of authority. But that's not enough. There are other considerations. The hands are also a different kind of, of authority. The hands that do and make, that also direct, say yes and no and warn. The pair is that flesh, is flesh and heart. There is a conflict with arrogance at the top of the picture and the wonderful question mark that is the, that is the ear, the shell, a brooch, a pendant, has so many implications, including a pre-human form.
I use a flat surface always because I rely on slight colour and tonal differences as part of the picture language and also the line. I'm not concerned with paint as three-dimensional, as luscious or as texture or tactile or thick like a blanket. All my pictures have multiple titles written in phrases and lines. Forty or so years ago, a psychologist friend of mine requested a title to lead the viewer into the content. I never know whether this is actually successful. About the reception of painting into contemporary art discourse, I'm not sure that what I do is part of this. Visual discourse and verbal discourse are different, and the idea of contemporary art is verbal. Is it a content, concept, a construct, decided by art experts? The art academics, historic, historians, scholars, curators, art writers, and it's not about what artists do independently. The artists who matter are the ones chosen by the art experts and the big money comes to those about whom they write, thereby recommending. It does seem as if the art experts have the power, not the artists, and I'm wondering whether this exhibition is trying to open this up. The difficulty for any viewers of art, which includes the art experts, is that we only want to know what we already know. Artists are mostly fixed into their own orientation, so take part in groups of similarity as viewers. Art experts seem to accept what those before them have accepted, except for the contemporary, which is other. Here, there seems to be an expectation of radical difference. Perhaps all the contemporary means of communication have, have created the idea, the concept of contemporary, and then serious artists have to be contemporary to be accepted as, as proper artists. It seems that the idea of contemporary art has become almost a brand. Now, can be held, contemporary is a thing in itself. I have wondered whether the word art is an inherited problem. Art used to be linked with the idea of talent, a gift, but a gift from where? Because we live in a secular society, do we somehow need a link to God given? I don't go along with the idea of inborn talent. I think it's more the left-right side of the brain, which I understand is now dismissed. It used to be that an artist had to be modern, not to do with realism. Now, artists have to be contemporary, and the further away from painting as a rectangle, the better. This exhibition seems to be questioning this. To sum up, I'm not trying to be modern or contemporary. I assume I'm an artist because my time is spent making pictures, but if I'm not seen as a real artist by the art authorities, maybe I'm not doing what I think I'm doing. If I am accepted by the art authorities, they may be wrong, so there can never be surety, which I find unnerving. There's what the artist says is done, what the viewer says, and there's the work itself, which may be com completely different to both, and which is the reference. But how the work is made 
physically, only the artist can describe. I'm told that there is tra a, a traffic in international contemporary art biennials and festivals in many countries that are well attended and which help to consolidate artist status. However, even here in Melbourne, we can't possibly know what artists are doing because there are so many artists, so many exhibitions, and this excludes the popular Rotary Club kind of exhibitions. So you see, me, I am absolutely enchanted to be taking part in this exhibition and to belong. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Helen Wardsley. Um, and now I'll ask Jeff Newton to deliver his presentation as well. Thanks, Jeff. I didn't prepare anything. I didn't prepare anything because I felt like uh, we'd all be talking generally, convivially about the show, about our own experiences our expectations for what painting can do as a critical discourse and sitting there for the past 40 minutes I've been terrified about standing up here so if there's any zingers you want to throw in at any point just be happy to you know heckle but I thought I'd talk about the reason that I don't make paintings anymore and perhaps uh, growing into the shoes of being a contemporary art dealer maybe I'm being critical of my own pre sort of practice as being a painter so I guess going to art school in Canberra in the 1990s and having studied in London in the late 1990s, uh, I guess I was exposed to a lot of heroic painters such as Julian Schnabel. You might put Bob Boynes in that sort of paragraph right at the end with a small font. Uh, but there was a sort of macho-ness to what happened in the studio. And I guess my own experiences more or my own sort of inspiration came from these kind of very macho painters of the 90s. And so when I left art school and moved to Melbourne to work at the NGV as a picture hanger, uh, I guess the sort of magic of looking at pictures, looking at paintings, big heroic paintings, sort of started to die a lot because you were just moving around stuff, which is what I do nowadays, you might say, Helen Johnson. But I guess on top of that, there's an incredible kind of sense or sort of magic that happens in the studio when you make that stuff. And I guess what this show is trying to do over the past few uh, 10 years of uh, sort of, uh, what's it called, a survey, is to try and wrap up the sort of marrow of that stuff and put it in a room, which is a difficult job for anyone. Hi. But back to me for a minute. Uh, so when I finished art school, I used to make really gooey, messy, abstract paintings on the floor of the studio and you'd have loud music playing, you'd be half drunk from the night before from some wonderful argument about painting and how critical it was or how critical it could be or couldn't be and so the sort of uh, mess of the studio kind of was a nice uh, kind of pin-up for I guess the frustrations of what contemporary painting was supposed to be doing in the early 2000s. And so when I moved to Melbourne, it was at a time when uh, contemporary 
art was kind of going through this really nice realist shift. So contemporary painting was kind of having this moment of reproducing everyday artifacts. So you had people like Nadine Christensen, Ricky Swallow, uh, David Jolly, Andrew McWalter, very sort of uh, seminal Melbourne contemporary artists. And so for painters to respond to what was happening at that time, that's where I guess things sort of bled out into institutional critique. So you had people like uh, Callum Morton, maybe in the late 90s, I'm slipping a bit here. I obviously don't read as much as the three guys before me. But I guess my own painting practice had to evolve to sort of suit or to respond to things that were happening at the time. So I would paint pictures of uh, exhibition invites, uh, things that would sort of sit well in a room to have a dialogue with what was happening outside of uh, the studio or what people, what other artists were sort of responding to. And I guess when you have an exhibition, it's supposed to sort of be this uh, timely footnote for not only your own practice, but how you are in the world and how you are in the world specifically in the town that you're making the work. And I guess over the past five years, I've stopped making art and I've been sending pictures to a wonderful little studio in China where they make the paintings for me. It's funny. It's good, isn't it? But I guess it allows me to sort of be distanced from the production of the work, which can be challenging and exciting and magical and have the complete sort of sense of reproduction left over to someone else. So to sort of think back to ADS's talk about Ian Burns uh, institutional critique and a sort of anecdote of that. The, bar, the past bunch of pictures that I've made via a sweatshop in China have been images that I've taken looking out from uh, each state museum and more recently each Victorian museum. And so what you end up with is a very realistic uh, picture of what the public sees when they leave each institution. So it's a sort of snapshot of the institution, but there's no institution in the picture. But you're sort of uh, left scratching your head about how familiar it is, how familiar it could be, what the scene looks like, what it's going to look like in 10 years. And I guess this is a sense of history painting, but without my sort of hand uh, leaving its own mark or leaving its own sort of uh, mess or magic, as you will. So there's no real aura to these pictures. But I guess that's the thing for me which makes really great painting is that sort of aura of uh, discovery and of accident and of chance which I can't do over the internet in China. That's all I've got. Thanks, Jeff. Um, I'd now like to invite all our speakers to um, take a seat out here for um, questions and conversation together, further discussion. Yes, there's um, two microphones that you guys will have to share, but um, firstly, I might hand over to you you all, if you have questions or comments on um, each other's presentations at this stage. 
both forgotten each other's talks. Uh, <laughs> I've got a question for Helen Maudsley. Do you ever get, do people always say, are you really John Brack's wife? Oh, good. Thanks. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you, Helen, for your dignified response. Uh, my question's to Andrew. Um, this is a short statement and then a question. But basically, sitting in this room, uh, I'll start with myself. I was born and bred Sydney, spent over a decade in Perth and over a decade here in Melbourne. In my proximity is an artist who lived, born, trained in Germany, lived for 20 years in Perth before moving here for a decade. I'm surrounded by artists, curators, theorists, viewers who share similar experiences and it's those experiences they bring to this, this exhibition. Whether they like it or not is irrelevant. But so, I would argue, is that thing about Sydney versus Melbourne, which shits me perennially, and I'm very disappointed to hear it raised as a singular argument within this discussion. So I have to ask you, why? To what avail? And where did you hope to go with such a, um, a retrograde conversation that actually is meaningless? No, um, <clears throat> uh, I warned that today's story would be Stranger Comes to Town. Um, but you're not a stranger. Um, no, um, the question was raised by my experience of the exhibition. It was a response to the show. Um, I came expecting painting more painting and I got a very narrow view of painting. So. It seemed to me that there was a, as it were, a, an argument before me being made within the exhibition that I responded to. So that's where it came from. I hope that answers the question. If but if 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 the complaint is that there that there are too many. Well, one, one complaint is that there are too many, it seems that you're putting there are too many figurative artists in the exhibition and connected to that. Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just not, saying there are. Assertion, assertion, yeah, yeah. And the other assertion is that there are too many Melbourne-based artists in the exhibition, you know, if it's to be a true representation of painting. Uh, if there were more, um, statistically, more painters from Sydney, would there be more abstract painters? Or I, I don't see, that's, that's a connection I don't necessarily see. You know, if there's a lot of if there's a lot of figurative painters painting now, um, maybe the history of abstract painting in Melbourne and Sydney is, is very different. But um, you know, what's the current situation? Uh, look, I, I <coughs> I've tried to generalise in that paper, and um, um, and I don't really want to speak for Sydney art. In attempt, mm -hmm. I tried to offer, in fact, a way of thinking about Melbourne art. Um, which, you know, um, would incorporate hitherto unrecognised features, let's say, from 
the you know um, wet paperwork of Sam Attio to uh, Gordon Walters. Um, so I, d I don't really look. There's as many I'm sure figurative Sydney painters as there are abstract painters, as I'm sure there probably are in Melbourne. Um, it's just that this show took a particular view, and and in doing so, I think it it <coughs> reminded me of um, that split. So that history, yeah. It's a reflection. I'm not. Um, yeah. um, just in response to that, before asking a question to all four of you, really, just to point out that this is part A or part one of two-part show, uh, and that the panorama is actually hung A to M in this case and N to Z. So some of those decisions about how to balance various approaches to painting is um, systematised, I suppose, through that process to some degree. No, indeed, and I, I was only referring to the first part yeah, of the show. It's the only part I've seen. And yeah. um, but I had another question, because I know um, all of you have taught in painting. And I wondered, Helen, you made a comment about a number of the students that you've had uh, at VCA and Monash. I just wondered if each of you or whoever would like to go first might be able to speak to, I guess, the reason that painting schools are growing again at art, art schools. It's cool all over again. Sorry, except for the ones that are closing. Yes, that's a good point. <laughs> oh, I just said it. It's cool all over again. I mean, to me, it's, um, as I said in my talk, I think it's, it's grounded in a desire for a material engagement and a slowness and not having everything streamlined through, like, corporate apparatuses. Um, but that said, I mean, obviously running parallel to that is like a huge explosion in popularity of painting within the art market over the last 10 years. Um, and far be it for me to be the one to say that those two things aren't related either, even though I think it's a really cynical <laughs> parallel or connection to draw. But um, yeah, I, re I really think that it's, there was a shift that happened really suddenly, probably five or six years ago when I was just teaching at VCA at that time, from students who were very, um, you know, it was like when Contemporary Art Daily was becoming like a thing that everyone looked at and everyone was obsessed with their documentation and how it looked when you uploaded it and all this kind of stuff. And then within a couple of years, it was, everyone was just like, no one could care less about that. And everyone was like on the floor of their studio mixing their own pigments out of dirt and stuff. And I, I found that deeply refreshing. So, yeah. Does anyone else want to say anything about that? Painting's always, I think, been a very, you know, it's always like, I don't know. Mm -mm. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, painting's always been very popular in art schools. I don't think more or less now than ever before. It's um, it's the uh, prestige medium, um, and you know, um, even until the publication of Bernard Smith's um, History of Australian Painting in 1962, painting was default Australian art. 
in a sense, with obvious exceptions, generalising again, um, that the two could be, were the same thing. Um, and has always been, I think. Um, uh, of course, you know, over-representation of women in painting was the story at the National Gallery School in 1892. Do we have any other questions from the floor? Yeah. I, I see painting as something that's very much a human thing in terms of expression. And I always remember a film called From Mount Mozart that was about Isaac Stern teaching students to play an instrument. And he was teaching these students in China. And they were learning music that was Western music. And he was teaching this young girl. And she was playing something, and she was playing it in a very wooden way. And he told her to put her instrument down and to sing the phrase that she'd been playing. And she sang the phrase, and she sang it beautifully. And she sang it very musically but she'd been using the instrument and she played it in a very wooden way. And I guess what I see painting in terms of the art world and in terms of human expression, it's about mark making. It's, a, it's about that extension of the arm and the extension of the person that actually makes a mark on something. And I don't think that will ever go away. We can make all sorts of things, but I think it's the mark making that's really the important human expression in art. Anybody like to comment? Do you want to come up here? Mm -hmm. Can I get an amen? Sorry. Sorry. Nervous. Nervous. I just observed in a way, for me, if I looked at this exhibition. If I looked at this exhibition, I'd be struck, in fact, by how much it's the image. Uh, and not the mark that is, in a way, where the work is. Um, I guess it's, for me, that, that kind of sweeps into thinking about historical debates around painting and the, the sort of um, emergence of conceptualism and the idea of mechanization and what happens when you take the hand of the artist out of the work or um, become reflexive about the sort of erratic nature of the artwork and the, the functions of genius that accompany that idea of the mark, I think, um, that, you know, that's also like a really male thing and, and that all of that stuff's sort of been critiqued and I feel like it's sort of come out the other side from you know a whole set of like prohibitions around oh you can't do this and you can't do that to people just being like everything's available you know you can so now it's sort of like you can make a decision to make a mark or you can make a decision for a mark to feel hesitant or to feel confident or to feel fickle or to be made by a machine or 
fabricated and that you can put those things into play with one another in a way that produces another sort of meaning. So the mark gets sort of situated within a lexicon of different possibilities, I think, yeah. Um, could I ask, um, to get back to the actual painting as verb in this exhibition, um, the only, there have been slight some conversations about it, but in many ways Helen Maudsley is the only one who's talked physically about what a brush mark does, etc. So could I ask maybe for, you know, at least two of you, maybe three of you at random, to talk about what you feel about the different, I knew you'd shake your head, you'd go straight back to China for the absence of brush mark. No, but um, just to talk about this exhibition in those senses of, because rather than getting locked into figuration or abstraction, I'd be curious to see what your views are on the actual technique of painting, uh, where it's pushing, where it's doing this, what's employed. There is a variety of mark making in the show, but it's not really been talked about yet. I think it's uncool to teach technique nowadays in art schools like, and I think kids are really looking for it at the same time because maybe in the past three or four years it seemed like you just showed up, you set fire to your beret, you opened your suitcase full of after dinner mints and then you painted. But nowadays it's a bit more like people want to learn about pigments, about rabbit skin glue and all this other sort of nuts and bolts of painting as opposed to the sort of fashion that came with, you know, it being heralded as a thing to do between high school and university. <laughs> Does anyone else want to? But part of the, uh, many of the works here, it, it's the ground that, that's important as well you know, the bumps of the ground and the, um, uh, um, the painting is just being put on the, on the bits that jump out. And it's very important for some artists to have a, have a, uh, a broad weave and for others to have a, a deep weave. And then that amazing felt uh, 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 painting I don't know how, how that um, artist did the application, but there's all these different kinds of applications that, that aren't marks, as it were, aren't um, hand marks. But of course hand marks are one area of doing it, but there's lots of different kinds of, of areas. And I, I, one of the things I've found marvelous about this show is the different kinds of ways of putting paint onto the canvas, especially that one who just does the, the furry bits. <laughs> but the, the felt one was extraordinary. Um, so there's, and then there's that marvelous, um, I think his name was David Boyd, the Aboriginal one, and the ground has been, um, uh, you know, it's a flat ground and on top are stuck all these little, these little um, jigsaw puzzle-like things and th that's the ground. And then on top of this um, is the painting itself. 
So, uh, you know, there's an extraordinarily varied way of, of doing the actual paintings, uh, which I find absolutely marvelous. What was the question again? at your own volunteering just to talk about the actual marks that are in this exhibition versus figuration versus abstraction or anything else like that and whether the painting as a verb so to speak. I haven't looked at it that much to give the correct response. I mean, I guess um, I, I think this is like a kind of a simple response, I guess, but I think like across all that variation in mark making is the consistency of time and the sense of the sense of like the labor and the time spent with this surface and the concentration that that entails. And I think that's something that people seek out increasingly. We probably have time for about one more question if there was anyone from the back who particularly wanted um, to ask our speakers anything. Now is the time to raise your hand. I think, thank you all too, they were really fantastic presentations. And Andrew, I think um, the, the, the figure, the, the minor figure of the artist, the useful artist is a very interesting model. And um, I wonder, um, and in a way I think also you have spent quite a lot of time looking at um, alternative art histories or artists' art histories, um, which could be also forms of minor art history. Um, and um, I, I wonder if you could reflect a bit more on that, that role of the useful artist and, uh, and um, in, that, in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, and what a, that's true, I think. I'm not sure if that's... Oh, that's true, I think. I, I like your description of minor history um, rather than a history of minor artists as... uses <laughs> me... Um, Yes, I think there's, um, what I was trying to, I was in fact trying to get beyond the Sydney-Melbourne divide, in a, you know, um, and um, I'm, con I'm concerned in a way to um, acknowledge really the work uh, in the history I, I, I'm writing of um, really artists not from Sydney or Melbourne, and even then, um, minor artists, let's say, or lesser-known artists, like, for instance, Percy Watson, um, who probably, I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with his work, but it's a very good example of somebody, in a way, bred within the centre of Melbourne figuration, George Bell student, and um, uh, who stepped outside that, in a way, in the late 40s and in the 50s, 
and worked um, in a way, as Helen was saying, pretty much with the Rotary exhibitions, um, and yet whose work seems to uh, be more interesting to me today than um, what I think of as the sort of Australian art, the overlap of Heidi with the Antipodeans. Um, I can't, I don't know of any students or any artist really working within, as it were, the Australian tradition that they would outline, but I'm familiar with a lot of artists who precisely working on trying to find blind spots and having found them uh, are engaged in a way not so much but certainly through the work but with the real social stories the lives of the artists seems to me to be more interesting than um, any institutional account relying on stylistic development which is somehow I think the default um, mode of um, our art museums. Um, so it seems to me that, that any number of artists are, and again I'm just reflecting I think on what artists are doing, um, and it's there that other artists can become productive. In the first instance often because you share something in common like your address or um, your uh, predilection for this or that, whatever in a way, rather than a kind of uh, relation to the work of one artist's work to another. And I think that, I think ultimately that Ian Burns right, it's what we tell each other as artists um, may indeed constitute another way of thinking the way of thinking our art. And perhaps could I also ask Helen Morsley a related question because um, Andrew before mentioned the Antipodean um, uh, manifesto and the artists associated with the, the Antipodean artists which became to dominate the history of Australian art and you orbited those circles and there of course were other art histories and other artists at the time who you would have been very familiar, you would be very familiar with. Um, do you identify other art histories that, that have been repressed from that period that you felt were um, useful at that time? Just say that last sentence again. Um, are there other artists or art histories from that period yeah. around the Antipodeans and around the time of Bernard Smith that um, have been elided that you felt were very interesting or useful? I feel I can't answer that because of um, uh, uh, other, other artists. I don't want to betray other artists. I can't, I can't say it, but I certainly think there are a lot of artists that were, um, got a terrific push and then got lost. But don't forget that um, the problem is the first, the first uh, um, original thing that anybody, in most that, that artists make, is about the time that, but before they're thirty, that's the first step. Well, the second step after you're thirty isn't so d easy to make, and many artists whose names I wouldn't dream of even s suggesting just have repeated 
their first um, uh, their first success over and over again, and even um, uh, you know maybe they've gone on painting, maybe they're still working, but they but they haven't added anything. So it's it's whether you it's how long you can keep on remaking without becoming sterile. I think. But I certainly think that, that for instance, in the, um, in the 1950s, there were all sorts of, I mean, everybody was a genius then. <laughs> and there were all sorts of people who were genuinely doing, um, making a contribution, but they couldn't get past the, the, the first one, they couldn't get onto the second one. And perhaps just one last quick question. Um, Andrew mentioned the George Johnson exhibition at the Tasmanian Tourist Bureau, which was a, 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 an extraordinary exhibition, both in exhibition design as well as um, the abstract nature of the painting. Um, were those debates between abstract artists and figurative artists as pronounced as art history would now um, um, the, the, suggest? The, yes, I think so, but the, the trouble is that... Um, you know, in the 1950s, it was a bit like, or even into the 1960s, it was like um, fiefdoms. Uh, there, were, there were groups of artists who did this, other groups of artists who did this, and they either didn't talk to each other, or if they did, they shrieked at each other. So... Um, it sounds like the internet. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you all so much for sharing so generously your positions, um, thoughts and reflections on painting today. Um, if everyone would like to join me in thanking our speakers, Helen Maudsley, Helen Johnson, Jeff Newton and ADS Johnson. <laughs>